Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the Ten Words, with Peter Lighthart and Alistair Roberts discussing the eighth word, Thou shalt not steal. They'll talk about personal property, how when God claims something, it becomes holy. They'll show how this is fulfilled in Christ, and also show how the eighth word relates to baptism. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope that you enjoy and are edified by listening in on this conversation. And here are Alistair Roberts and Peter Lighthart discussing the eighth word. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lighthart. I'm here today with Alistair Roberts. And we are alone. Brian Motes has gone out of the room and left us in charge. So we feel like we can just, uh, if we feel like kids in a candy store, we can do whatever we want with Brian out of the room. Uh, we are in the middle of a series on the 10 words. Uh, we are uh, today talking about the eighth word, thou shalt not steal. Uh, as I've said every episode, I'll say again, we're using the phrase 10 words. You can fill in, if you've been listening, you can fill in the rest of the sentence. I've uh, been using the phrase 10 words because that's the biblical usage. Uh, when the ten, so-called Ten Commandments are referred to in Deuteronomy, they're, they're called the Ten Words. And uh, that reminds us that the Ten Words include words other than commandments. Uh, we're in a section of the Ten Words, though, the second half of the Decalogue, the last five commandments, uh, which are strictly speaking commandments. They're all imperatives, negative imperatives. And the Eighth Word, like the Sixth and the Seventh, is just a two-word negative commandment in, uh, in uh, Hebrew. Uh, just the negative and the verb steal, not steal. To fill out what these commandments are getting at and the theology behind the commandments, we've been taking the sixth word, thou shalt not kill, as kind of the master rubric for thinking about the second half of the Decalogue. The first half of the Decalogue is about violations of or assaults on God, uh, false worship, worshiping through images, bearing God's name lightly, violating the Sabbath, dishonoring God's authorities, the authorities that God has set up over us. Uh, those are all more or less direct assaults on God. Uh, the second half of the Decalogue is, has to do with assaults on God's image, most directly in the sixth word, violation, uh, the, thou shalt not kill. Uh, we talked in the last episode about how adultery and other sexual sins are a, an assault on the image of God in uh, marriage, in sexuality, and also, as Alistair pointed out, uh, the image producing a reality of sexuality through sexual intercourse, a man and a woman produce images of God. That's the, that's the language of Genesis 5. Uh, and the image of God, Adam was created in the image of God, and then his son is made in the image of God, mediated through uh, Adam knowing his wife Eve, and she gives birth to a son. So that's, uh, adultery is also an, a, a an assault on the image of God. And uh, we want to explore how uh, crimes against and sins against property are also assaults on uh, the image of God. And that requires us to think about the linkages between persons and property. Um, an assault on a person we can see as an assault on the image of God as it exists directly in that person. But how is uh, stealing something from your neighbor or shoplifting something from the corner drugstore, how are those assaults on the image of God? Uh, and to see that, we have to think uh, about how persons and property are connected with each other. 
And I think we can, we can see a pretty close connection if we think more existentially or experientially. When I was a teenager, my uh, parents' home was robbed while, while we were all home. Uh, my brothers and I were out in the garage tinkering with one of my brother's cars, and we came in through the uh, door into the kitchen, and my mother shouted at us from, the, from my dad's study, run to the neighbors, we're being robbed. And uh, as we were standing in the doorway, a man with a stocking, a black stocking over his face came around the corner. He's holding a butcher knife in his hand. That memory is etched in my mind, and it was a prof- it was very disturbing moment. They didn't get anything, as it turned out. There was, you know, they got uh, various reasons. My mother, my mother uh, was able to set off a burglar alarm, and the police were there in a few minutes, and uh, the the uh, thieves got away. But that was a that didn't feel like just uh, a couple of guys. There were a couple of guys in the house. It didn't feel like a couple of guys coming into the house and assaulting our stuff. That felt like a personal assault. It felt like a, a uh, uh, it felt like a, they were coming after us, which is what you know, truly what they were doing. And uh, they were coming for uh, money, my dad's money. They were coming for my dad being a medical doctor. He had drugs in the house. They knew that he was a doctor apparently, so they were looking for some kind of drugs. Uh, they were trying to take stuff, but it still was a violation. And if you've experienced a theft, you know that that's the feeling that you have. You think when we, we try to reassure ourselves by saying, well, you know, yeah, somebody broke into my car and took my stereo. It's just a stereo I can get over. At least I still got my health. But that's a kind of a, that's kind of a uh, reassurance or rationalization. What, what we really feel is like, is that it's an assault on ourselves. And I think that points to an, a real, a real connection that we have to the things that we own. It's not, this is not just a, a matter of, this is not just external stuff, but especially things that are uh, things we've had for a long time, things that may be family heirlooms, things we've inherited from our grandmother. These have personal investment for us. It's not just things, but they're things that are closely attached to our identity. As this command is unpacked in places like Deuteronomy 23, there is that expl- exploration of the relationship between person and things, um, the property that we possess. Um, there's also the focus upon man-stealing. There's a very uh, particular egregious form of theft, the theft of persons themselves. Mm-hmm. And then you have out of that other forms of theft, a certain um, certain practices of usury, for instance, are seen under that rubric. Um, and the ways that we relate to our things can be subtle within these commandments because there's almost a restriction at certain points upon absolute property. The idea that you could own your um, field entirely without having any duty to anyone else, that's a form of theft. Mm-hmm. Rather, people should be able to pick as they go through. They should not be allowed to use a sickle, but they're allowed to pick grain as they go through your field. And those sorts of principles help us to explore something more about the relationship between person and property that Scripture is very um, concerned to protect and to establish um, the ways that we relate to things and the ways that an excessive approach of property can be a form of stealing from our neighbor, but also an invasion of that property can also be stealing from another perspective. This links up with things we've said in relation to other other commandments, particularly I'm thinking of the discussion we had in the last episode about 
adultery and marriage. Uh, you made the point that marriage is a is a public the, the the marriage event, the wedding event is a public event. Um, the marriage itself, even the sexuality of the marriage, is part of a public institution. This is not just a private sexual relation between two adults, but it's woven into a public reality and a social reality, uh, and uh, that there's a there's a, a direction of that relationship of the sexual relationship toward the toward the common good. And the same thing is going to, the same thing here we're seeing with property. Uh, the point you're making about um, the gleaning laws and the harvest laws. The Israelites are not allowed to go back and uh, pick up the, the, the fallen stalks of grain. They're not allowed to, to harvest all the way to the edges of their field. They have to leave, uh, have to allow travelers to eat from their fields. Those are, as you say, restrictions on the absolute use and absolute control of property. It also positively puts us in the direction that property exists for the sake of the common good. It's for the sake of the good of us and our families and our uh, our households. Uh, but it's not just for that. It's not just uh, it's, it's not just private good that we're our property is not just given to us for our private enjoyment or our private good. As one Jewish commentator puts it, uh, uh, we have property for the sake of pursuing God's justice. That's why we're given property. Uh, so that we can uh, use it for the good uh, of the whole community, which includes using it for our own good, but not exclusively exclusively for our own good and our own enjoyment. Other commandments that are included in the expansion of these principles in Deuteronomy are commandments restricting the right of people to bring the wages of a prostitute into the house of the Lord, that that is an abomination to the Lord. And we can often think about money as... Um, something that dissolves all ties, all moral ties with the source even, that there is something about converting something into money and that pure value that relieves us of those original moral bonds between actions and um, what is received from them as a product. But yet God challenges that too, that there is a moral connection between um, wicked activity and the gain from that that corrupts the money itself um, and those notions of property i think often push back against some of our prejudices and um, assumptions within a modern society this links up with what uh, drew johnson talked about in our interview and also in the class that we had with him he talks about the biography of ritual activity in ancient israel so um, you bring a gift or an offering and you go through the proper procedures at the sanctuary, and you think God is going to be pleased with it. That that event at the sanctuary is not the whole of the that's not the whole of the ritual. There's a backstory to the ritual. And part of that is the the way that you acquired the property, the way that you used your property. Uh, if you're harvesting from a field that you've excluded gleaners from your field, you've harvested all the way to the corners of your field, and now you're bringing a grain offering to the Lord. Uh, part of the biography of that grain offering is that you're, it's coming out of that disobedience, and the Lord is judging the whole biography. So you can't. So this is the prophetic critique, but it's built into the law. It's not just a prophetic critique uh, that uh, the Lord is judging the entirety of that ritual's biography. Uh, he's not just looking at what they're doing in the sanctuary, and and in fact, if the sanctuary uh, ritual is an attempt to cover over the disobedience that uh, led to that ritual. Uh, then that's particularly uh, egregious and abominable to the Lord. He rejects those kinds of offerings. So um, the uh, yeah, there's a connection here between the use of property 
the the wages of the prostitute is the is the one that you cited. The use of the property, the source of the wealth, and the the way that it's used liturgically, the way it's used at the sanctuary. Uh, to get back to the uh, our, uh, discussion of person and property. I think one of the one of the clearest biblical examples of this is to think through uh, God's property. God is a holy God, and uh, things become holy because God claims them. Things become holy because God is present uh, with them. Ground is holy because God is present. When the Lord appears in the burning bush to Moses, the, the ground is holy because the Lord is there in his glory. And so Moses is supposed to take his shoes from his feet because he's on holy ground. When the Lord comes into the tabernacle, then he consecrates the tabernacle and everything in it is holy. Uh, and in a kind of practical way, what that means is it, is, it belongs to Yahweh. It's Yahweh's altar. It's Yahweh's table. It's Yahweh's snuffers and it's Yahweh's forks that the priests are using. He's claiming them. And the way that the Bible describes this is by transferring the, the language of holiness, which is in the, originally used to describe God's character. He's the holy one. But then everything he claims takes on a kind of holiness. That means that it belongs to him and it's accessible only to those who are holy, useful, used only by those who are holy. So that sets up this connection between, there's this, uh, there's, there's a connection between God's person and an attribute of God, and a key attribute in, the, in, in Scripture, uh, and the property that he claims. And as images of God, there's a kind of, I think in, in a sense we can talk about a kind of um, reflected sacredness to human property. Uh, we're in the image of God, and the things that we have participate in that, uh, participate in the kind of uh, reflected holiness that we have. So that uh, that's, again, another more theological way of getting at the, the point I made uh, from a more emotional or existential direction. Because we're images of God, the property we have uh, becomes part of our person. It's, uh, it's, uh, and again, um, we can fold in your point that if, insofar as it becomes part of our person and we are devoted to the service of God and the service of others, that means that that's what, the, that's what our property is for as well. That goodness of human property that the Eighth Commandment is protecting, I think is a, a theme that we see throughout Scripture, that property is one of the things that enables us to truly serve God and neighbor. Um, if we did not have property, we would not be as easily able to participate in that cycle of gift. I think of the fact, for instance, that when Christ gives his spirit to the church, there is a unified gift of the spirit, singular to the church as a whole body. But yet that gift is it's remembered through the many or represented through the many different gifts of the spirit given to particular members. And in the same way, our particular property enables us to participate in God's property and God's gift giving that since God has given us the good gifts of property within the world, we are enabled to enjoy something of the dignity that comes with, for instance, the biblical vision of everyone sitting under, under their own vine and fig tree, but also to participate in God's process of giving to his creatures that we can give to others. And I think that's one of the keys to uh, Christians resisting what is genuinely a dominance of mammon in our contemporary world. Just to, we could take some time to expand on that, but just a, a few data points. Political pundits will tell you in America, maybe it's true in Great Britain too, 
the the direction or the the um, the direction a presidential election will tilt depends in large part on how well the administration has managed the economy. Whether the GDP is growing at a steady rate, whether the unemployment rate is the moral character of the country is not the deciding factor for uh, making a presidential administration popular. It's whether we're all making money. I think there's a, a good case to be made that a lot of American foreign policy is driven by financial and monetary concerns. By you know, We're protecting our freedom, we say, by fighting wars on the other side of the planet. How is that protecting our freedom? How is that protecting our way of life? Uh, what's protecting our way of life because it's you know providing a steady stream of oil which keeps our economy running and keeps everybody mobile, uh, keeps everybody free to do what they like, keeps everybody wealthy, and particularly keeps um, oil corporations wealthy. Uh, Andrew Basovich, uh, uh, a Roman Catholic, uh, uh, he's written a lot on American uh, foreign policy, and this is this is the point that he's made repeatedly that the American foreign policy is driven by protection of American freedom, understood as uh, the freedom to acquire more and more stuff. And when there's an interruption of the flow of stuff uh, or a potential interruption on the other side of the world, we send the troops in to make sure that that doesn't happen. So we keep our flow of stuff going. Our world is dominated by, uh, by money. And I, the point I was going to make is that one of the ways that we resist that as Christians is by uh, holding to what you were saying uh, a moment ago, recognizing that uh, the put in terms of uh, Pentecostal terms that you were suggesting, uh, we've received the Spirit so that we can use the gifts of the Spirit for the common good, for the building up of the church. Uh, we have that good property that is genuinely ours. The gifts that the Spirit gives are genuinely ours, but they're to be used for the edification of the church. And I think that's the paradigm we should use to think about physical property as well. Uh, we've been given certain physical property it's not just to enhance our own enjoyment of the world. God wants us to enjoy good things. He has given us good things, so we should enjoy them. Uh, but that's not the only purpose that, he get, that He's given us uh, wealth. He's given us wealth so that we can honor Him with that wealth. And we do that in part by being generous and, uh, and uh, using our wealth for the good of others. If that's the mentality, we recognize that we are, to use the common but accurate jargon buzzword uh, that we're stewards of the wealth that God has given us, recognizing that and recognize that we're stewards for the sake of the common good. That's a way of resisting the dominance of mammon that's so widespread. And here I think um, scripture is very much challenging um, a lot of different positions that would be um, prevalent on various sides of our political um, divides. On the one hand, challenging any assault to property that would deny the goodness of property, that there is something good about property. God has given human beings property as part of what it means to be in his image, as part of what it means for human beings to participate in his gift-giving process. And any attempt to um, just remove property from the picture and make human beings... Um, propertyless and move into a situation where nothing belongs to anyone, that is an assault upon his image in humanity. On the other hand, there's an assault to any attempt to absolutize property, to have a sort of notion of property that absolves us from responsibility to God and neighbor that might place limit upon our rights to use that as we want. So there is restriction upon the taking of interest from one's neighbor. Um, there's also restrictions upon 
the complete use of your property in a way that would exclude your needy neighbour from taking the benefits of certain of your property just to survive. And taking both aspects of that, I think we have a Christian foundation to speak in very important and prophetic ways to all sides of our political debates. Yeah, just to add another example, the prohibition of taking a man's cloak uh, as collateral for a loan. Uh, if you take a cloak, his cloak as a collateral for a loan, you have to return it to him by nightfall. So you keep it during the day and then you return it at night. Uh, and uh, that commandment is uh, uh, buttressed by the warning that the Lord will hear his cries and will take vengeance against you if you take uh, your poor brother's... The, the thing that keeps him warm at night, if you take that away from him, then uh, you're, the Lord is going to act on his behalf and uh, take vengeance. We've been uh, thinking as, we went, as we've gone through the uh, Ten Words about how uh, the Ten Words are not only giving us explicit guidance, but also providing a portrait of Christ. Uh, Jesus is the one who keeps these commandments. Jesus is the one who uh, worships His Father exclusively. Jesus is the one who bears His Father's name. Jesus is the one who doesn't murder, but instead submits Himself to unjust violence. Uh, he's not unfaithful to his bride, but he's faithful even to death. And we can see um, that Christological dimension in the eighth word as well. And one way to think about this is to think about the eighth commandment as a kind of lens through which to look at the whole of redemptive history as a, a story of theft and restoration, a theft and restitution. Uh, Adam is committing a lot of different kinds of sins when he takes the forbidden fruit, but one of them is he's taking God's fruit, God, something that's restricted, that God has prohibited, and he's stealing that from, so the, the uh, humanities, uh, the, uh, the, fall of, the fall of the human race uh, begins with an act of theft, and uh, in a sense, all the sons of Adam are thieves, were thieves in a fundamental way, stealing what belongs to God. Um, most fundamentally, we're taking ourselves and using ourselves as if we are, were our own property. We also steal from God in all kinds of other ways as sons of Adam. Jesus comes, doesn't think, uh, as, as Philippians 2 says, he doesn't think equality with God something to be grasped and held on to. As the King James has, he doesn't think it robbery to be equal to God. Uh, he gives himself up. He doesn't seize. He doesn't steal. Uh, rather, he gives himself. He makes restitution for a debt that he doesn't owe. Uh, he uh, makes compensation. He pays the price that we owe. A lot of uh, economic language used to, uh, uh, to describe the atonement. Uh, I've been uh, reading a book by Devin Singh, S-I-N-G-H, called Divine Currency, where he's pointing out the use of this economic language in uh, patristic and medieval theology, uh, both in theology proper in Christology and in atonement theology. And a lot of the atonement theology is um, explicated in, in, in economic imagery imagery of price and compensation and restoration. Sometimes it's in terms of restoration of honor that's been uh, damaged, uh, but it's often done in terms of paying the price and uh, giving, uh, making compensation, paying a debt, and so on. That's biblical language to describe what Jesus has done. He is the last Adam who reverses the sin of the first Adam, restores the debt that uh, we owe on our behalf, uh, and then by the Spirit, He's making us into, uh, remaking us into His image so that we become, we become givers and uh, you, uh, we too begin to use our wealth for the common good and not just for our own. 
So I think you can, you can look at the entirety of redemptive history through the lens of the eighth word. We've commented also upon the parallels between the um, first five words and the second five words, the concluding five words, and seeing the ways commandment by commandment, how they can map onto each other. The connection between the third and the eighth word would seem to be quite a strong one, as we see that um, God has placed his name upon us, therefore we are his, to act in a way that... Um, if we bear that name in vain, we're stealing from the Lord. And I think Paul brings this forth very clearly at the end of 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And the way that we act is a matter of rendering to God his due, that... Um, acting in a wicked way or treating our bodies as ours to dispose of however we might like is fundamentally an act of robbery from God. That fits with what the, the way that the uh, church fathers use the imagery of, the, of baptism as a seal. Baptism imposes the name of God on us. We bear the name of God because uh, we're baptized into the triune name. And the seal is a mark of ownership. It's the seal, um, it's the, the brand on an animal or the brand on a slave. And so, um, baptism is the is the mark that uh, designates us as the as God's property. And uh, if we deny our baptism by our behavior, we're uh, using God's property for our own purposes. We're robbing, as you say, from God. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.